A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everybody, welcome to this latest episode. It's been a few weeks, I think, uh, since we were last here. I think, was it Endgame last time? I think it yes. was Endgame. So um, we are back out into the, well, not not really the wastelands so oh. much as off into the ocean. Um, but we'll get to that momentarily. Uh, I am Adrian Smith, and with me as ever is my co-host from across the ocean, Rod Barnett. Hello, everyone. I am not a descendant of Atlantis. I am pretty sure. <laughs> I've got so many questions. Oh, this this, this this movie is essentially a raft of questions surrounded <laughs> by an ocean of what in the hell are we doing here? <laughs> yes, it is. So, um, brief catch up, I guess. Um, you've had several podcast episodes out since last time oh. we did this. Anything you want to mention from the Bloody Pit or the Nashi cast? Um, I'm, I've been very pleased with the last uh, three episodes. I just uh, the the episode our episode on the Mad Ghoul from 1943 just went up, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, very happy with that because that's a film that I don't think gets nearly enough attention, and it's much more adult in its uh, in its approach and in the way it uh, handles things than uh, a lot of the universal horror films of the 1940s that it's uh, surrounded by. So it's really fascinating to examine that and to really kind of wallow in the joys of watching George Zuko actually have just some really juicy dialogue that isn't an embarrassment to speak. Uh, he's 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 great in anything but he really gets to uh he really gets some good stuff to do in in the mad ghoul and the episode before that uh very pleased with how everyone's uh taken to that one where uh mark clark and i the the uh the author talked about uh eight giant bug movies from the 1950s that's been that's been a very popular episode and I can see why. Mm. I mean, you start talking eight. about those movies. Yeah, there were eight. That's just it. I always, uh, I, I, I've talked about before how it just seems like there was a, a big blob of giant bug movies in the 1950s. And then when you actually get down to it, there were really only eight. Uh, and I always thought, you know, if I had to like 
throw out a ballpark figure, I would have guessed, eh, you know, 15, maybe 16. But no, no, no. What you're doing is kind of conflating, like, the giant lizard movies and, and all the other <laughs> movies like that. It's like, you know, yes. if you're just saying bug, it's a different thing entirely. So, Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, those bugs generally um, were mutated through some kind of nuclear blast this is out true. there in the desert. Mm. Which um, which kind of brings us nicely round to what we're doing in this season, and um, you know the apocalypse and uh, nuclear destruction has never seemed quite so fun <laughs> as it did in the nineteen eighties in Italy. Um, but this film, so this episode, we are on to the Atl- well, depends what you want to call it, the Atlantic interceptors. You could call yeah. it, you can call it Raiders of Atlantis. Italian title is I Predatori di Atlantide, or you know, the Predators of Atlantis, I guess. And um, uh, well, my I mean, alternate you, you, title, my alternate oh, title, my alternate title in English is "Help me, I'm so confused." Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the one that you can't call it is coherent. This is uh, true. <laughs> so this is a entry into the canon from Ruggiero Deodato who uh, I think we're all big fans of. Oh, and yeah. is this it? I can't remember. We've done him before, haven't we? Or have we? Um, we have talked about, we've, we've talked, talked around about... him. Have we yeah. actually covered any of his movies? I'm um, not sure. Uh, you and I, like the first time I ever appeared on your podcast was to talk about Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. And since then, um, I've, joined you at least one more time where we talked about oh wait um, uh, hercules prisoner yeah of which he had a hand in which he basically directed yeah and, and then there uh, but we did talk about live like a cop die like a man we we mentioned it but we didn't do an episode yeah we didn't do an episode think. on it and uh, uh, but i mean i do love that movie but yeah Ruggiero dodato is such a lovely guy and obviously just we just lost him last year mm-hmm. um this uh, there's an interview on the blu-ray of this uh, release by Severin that he did, which I don't know if it's one of the last, but it must be one of the last interviews he did, um, which is a shame. Yeah, I've mentioned this story uh, before, but I interviewed him about 12 years ago mm-hmm. now, probably. And um, it was around the time when the latest edition of his book was being republished by Fab Press called Cannibal Holocaust and the Savage Cinema of Ruggiero Diodato. 
And I did a little mini episode a couple of months ago. Actually, when, it was when he died. I think it was earlier this year, wasn't it? Like January or February. I can't you know, remember exactly, but yeah, it was. It, no, it was last year. It was in 2022. Was it? Okay. Well, anyway, they just they just did a new edition of the book again. It seems like every 10 years there's <laughs> another version of this book. So I, I met him when it was the second edition. And um, yeah, he's just a lovely guy. The last thing you would the last thing you would probably expect considering the tone and and content of most of his films. I mean, you know, everything from Cannibal Holocaust to House on the Edge of the Park to Cut and Run to Body Count. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So he'd just done this is what makes this film kind of an interesting movie, even if it <laughs> as a film it doesn't make any sense. But it's quite interesting because from where it sits in his career, because he'd just done cannibal holocaust and by the time cannibal holocaust came out and you know all the kind of international furore kicked off he'd already shot house on the edge of the park so that was in the bag uh he'd done those two films quite close together but then once cannibal holocaust had gone public and he'd gone to court and it had been banned and you know all of that stuff he pretty much couldn't get any more work he was struggling to get any more gigs I think because people just associated him now with yeah. such a, an extreme level of filmmaking that um, nobody would hire him, basically. So my understanding is I watched the interview with him talk a little bit about this. He was invited by a producer to go to the Philippines to meet Imelda Marcos. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, because she had built, I think she wanted to turn the Philippines into a big filmmaking center. Which, I mean, let's not forget, mm -hmm. tons of yes. movies were shot in the Philippines in the 70s, particularly by Roger Corman and the like. And she built this big um, studio facility and wanted to invite people to come and, and use it. And so he was invited to go. And I think he may have been one of the first. From the way he talks about it in the interview, it was like he was the first di actual director to turn up there. Because he said they had loads of great facilities whilst at the same time having loads of stuff um missing like they didn't have tracking or dollies yeah it's like there were things that they were unaware of that were pieces and parts you know? yeah that they needed they had a stunt school and all these guys were great at doing what they did and they had makeup people sitting around but they didn't have any actors and it was just a weird situation and he got shown loads of great locations and um, eventually after much toing and froing he agreed to come and make a film there but they never really had a proper script. That's my understanding. And it shows. That... My God, does it show. <laughs> this is a film that was improvised for the most part. And um, yeah, but maybe we should take a step back before we get into whatever the yeah. hell is going on. So technically, there is a script. And it was written by, according to credits... Um, Tito Capri and Vincenzo Menino, although Deodato says he, I think he came up with the basic story and and, and worked mm -hmm. with them on that. Um, are there any other names associated with this film that you want to mention or look at before we try and well, I mean, the story? I mean, Tito Carpi, Tito Carpi did Tentacles, yeah. for example, and um, he was involved in the Bronx Warriors trilogy. And a bunch of stuff like that. He did Codename Wild Geese. So he was a fairly accomplished 
brighter. Yeah, Vincenzo uh, Manino, uh, his name's attached to uh, Devilfish and uh, even all the way back to Argo, the Fantastic Superman. Hey. And uh, apparently worked with uh, Fulci on uh, as a writer on the New York Ripper. Oh, right. But, you know, yeah. And it, it, he had a hand in uh, Violent Rome and, and several other films of note yeah. in the 70s. But like I say, I mean, it, it really feels like it really feels like this one got away from yeah, it. Where you know, this one's, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, don't get me wrong. You look at it, you look at his list of credits and you and you realize, OK, he was he was obviously a guy who would try his hand at almost anything. I mean, when when you're writing things, you know, comedies like I'm for the hippopotamus and uh, you know, right next to special cop in action and violent Naples. It's like, mm. okay, so, you know, you're, you're definitely game for trying anything. Yeah. But the fact that there's a, there's an unfinished feeling to this film has to come down to, see, my, my initial thought was uh, maybe they lost the script yeah. <laughs> and we're just having to improvise and throw it all together later in the editing yeah. room. But the knowledge that there really wasn't a finished screenplay or a, scre- mm-hmm. a screenplay that they they had either you know all agreed was what we, what we what we're going to do yeah. kind of shows itself pretty effectively. Yeah. I mean, they basically thing. just had a load of ideas for set pieces and things that they could shoot in the Philippines, oh. and then I think they got back to yeah. Italy and tried to piece it together, found a load of gaps, so shot some more stuff in Italy in studios and. I think some of the stuff on the beach is just down in Italy. Um, and then, yeah, try to make something of it. And Yeah. But so anyway, so why are we talking about it in relate? Because it's not a post-apocalypse. It is set in the future, though. It's set in the futuristic year of 1994. I know, 11 years yeah. in the future from when the film was made. And it's strange that all of the cars seem to have tags yeah. that say 1983. It's very strange. Yeah, and they... So um, we begin, it's a little bit James Bond style in that we begin in the middle of a story that's just unfolding, a kind of big action sequence. So our star, we've had him on the podcast before. This time he doesn't have his big truck. It's Christopher Connolly. And there's an actor right there. Let's let's, let's take note of the fact that Christopher Connolly was almost always uh, a kind of... uh, uh, supporting character mm. he was a, a a guest star he's not someone who really rare he rarely shall we say was the lead in a film but he was also a face that by the time this movie got made he's fairly familiar yeah. i mean you know he was he was uh before before he struck out into doing the uh, the italian uh stuff of this type you know where he ends up doing you know strike commando and uh, Django Strikes Again with Franco Nero in the late '80s. Uh, before that, I mean, he was doing you know te- you know lots of television guest stars. I yeah. mean, the year he made this, or the year this came out, anyway, he was in The Fall Guy, Matt Houston, Fantasy Island, Bring Him Back Alive. So he's doing a lot of television while also doing things like The Bronx Warriors, as you were talking yeah. about before. But he's you know I think for a lot of us, I mean, you have to take note of him because. He was in the uh, the the well received and well done television miniseries over here for the Martian Chronicles. Oh yeah, and he was uh, he uh, he was in uh, Benji, which was a major hit over here in uh, 1974. Is that about and a dog? He was. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh, yeah, that okay. was. Uh, I, I have I have I have fond memories yeah. of my of of seeing that movie in the theater when I was six 
and it being you know it being one of those things where you're like ah oh, wow yeah this is this is really cool and I'm six that. so I think it's so I think it's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> well no wait a minute I would have been like seven or eight I, well at any rate it is one of those things where he's just one of those guys who for a long period of time seemed like just one of those faces that's going to pop up all the time but always in supporting roles yeah. you know you go back into the 60s and you'd spot him on you know the fugitive and my three sons and voyage to the bottom of the sea and just everything under the sun you know it's all it doesn't matter yeah but putting him in the lead role here he handles the lead role just fine yeah he's got the kind of semi mask you know the, the semi too masculine craggy too possibly too craggy a face yeah. <laughs> that kind of spells out serious possible hard man yeah. with a heart of gold and that's that's what's required at, at least here. 20 years older than the uh romantic lead oh i know <laughs> which oh yeah we should we should we should talk about yeah, her we'll because <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so he's he's some case some kind of mercenary appears he's he's involved in kidnapping somebody from this beautiful mansion and his partner in this um endeavor is a guy called Wash. Um, mm -hmm. But every time he calls him Wash, he says, my name's not Wash, it's Mohammed, because he's evidently he's converted. He's recently converted, yeah. Um, but they, yeah. they only keep that up for about the first 15 minutes of the film, and then everyone just keeps calling him Wash, and it's the Mohammed thing is never mentioned again, which, again, is another kind of gap in that you wonder at what point in the script they thought that was a good idea or didn't or something. But anyway... <laughs> So, yes. and he's played by Tony King, who mm. has also just—he's an American actor, been in a bunch of stuff, including other Italian films. And, oh yeah, well, um, I mean, he worked with—he like uh, worked with Antonio Margheriti in uh, mm -hmm. *Cannibal Apocalypse* and *The Last Hunter*. Mm -hmm. But he, you know, but he, you know, and and also in movies, you know, big movies with like Richard Pryor and mm. and Burt Reynolds. He was in *Sharky's Machine* yeah. for. Uh, and things like that and so, goes back to shaft is in that isn't he shaft yeah 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 he i think that was his first screen role yeah. but at the same time you get to the point where you're like oh okay so this is a guy who has been around the block a few times and knows what he's doing but not you know it, not, not long after this the the, the 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 roles did seem to kind of dry up for him mm. i'm not sure what was going on but past about not past about this movie He's not really doing much work again until the uh, the early '90s, and and then it gets really spotty. And it appears that he may have, he may still be alive, but I'm not sure that anybody's ever tried to find out what's going on with him. Yeah, which is a shame. I'd be interested to do an interview with him mm -hmm. of some sort. Definitely would. Um, but I was wondering whether because his he played a character in a Margariti film just a couple of years earlier than this uh one of his vietnam films um oh, which one was it tiger oh, the last hunter tiger joe he's he was in, in tiger joe he's in tiger joe where he also plays a character called washington <sighs> so well his character in the last hunter was named george washington oh so maybe it's these are all connected it's like a shared <laughs> universe and the atlantis interceptors is about what he did when he got home maybe so yeah. we atlantis interceptors gives us the uh the vision into the 1994 yeah. future of this particular this character where, yeah. yeah where vietnam vets end up as mercenaries so they kidnap somebody and they take him away and they get paid a lot of money to do this and um and then they decide what they're going to go off in a 
on a yacht and just get out of town and have a lovely holiday together. So they're off, as, you know, as as you do. Yeah. So they're just off into the ocean. Um, meanwhile, we cut to a big oil platform in the middle of the ocean, which apparently belonged to Diodato's brother-in-law. Diodato is married into some big rich oil family in Italy. Really? Yeah. So he got okay. he got access to this oil platform because of his brother-in-law, and um, out on this oil platform is George Hilton mm-hmm. playing Professor Saunders and George Hilton now we had him on the podcast before I think we probably have I'm starting to lose track now oh, we, we've but definitely he's a talked legend. about yeah. George Hilton we before yeah. Sure he is, yeah. and um, he is involved in some top secret stuff out there but he's waiting for this helicopter to arrive and the helicopter lands and out jumps Ivan Razimov. It's like uh, kind of Italian cult cinema bingo. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're all popping up. Yeah, yeah. And he plays the helicopter pilot Bill and he's brought with him Dr. Kathy Rollins played by Joa Scola who mm-hmm. is an expert in pre... What was it? What was it they said? Pre-Mayan languages, I believe. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 vagueish enough that uh, you know it's going to be important. Yeah, and she's just annoyed because she doesn't know why she's there. They've, she feels like she's been kidnapped. But uh, did you want to mention anything about her before? She's not an actress I was familiar with. Well, I didn't think I was very familiar with her either. I knew I had seen her in this film, but it turns out that uh, she uh, she has a role in uh, Fulci's Conquest from the year before, oh. and also in. Uh, I know how much you uh, like that one. I, I I am a fan. I'm I'm not going to pretend otherwise. <laughs> uh, not for the reasons that uh, should probably be. Yeah, yeah, probably. I should, I, should, I should probably clamp down on that. But also, I recently saw her when I finally watched the. Uh, the sort of sequel to uh, Nothing Underneath from uh, 1988 called Too Beautiful to Die. She's in that as well. Mm-hmm. She didn't have a she didn't have a very long uh, uh, career from roughly the mid 70s well, in film at least from roughly the mid 70s to roughly the mid 90s. Right. So maybe you know maybe, maybe I'm wrong to say that it's you know 20 years is probably a pretty good run, especially for someone who was apparently you know she was. Uh, she was an actress who got her start in, uh, you know, photo novels in in uh, in Italy, and and then uh, she she won the Miss Teenager Beauty contest at some point. Haven't we all? Oh, I, I can relate. Yeah, yeah. and then <laughs> so she started. She's that's how that's how she got into films. But I find it weird that uh, she was involved in the mid nineties. Uh, she was uh, part of. She was uh, indicted. Oh. Uh, as part of a dr- as a drug as part of a drug trafficking scheme uh, between Naples and Rome, <laughs> and there were a lot of other public figures such as Berlusconi oh. uh, involved. Uh, she was arrested for she was arrested for five months, two of which were under house arrest. And in '96, she was indicted along with other defendants, wow. and uh, it took years for this to wind its way through the court. And uh, she was eventually acquitted in uh, January of 2007 because there was just not enough uh, evidence to tie her into any of this. But the experience she used to uh, write the screenplay for a film that came out in 2001. uh, Yeah. What what can you say other than 
you know, wow. there are different ways to keep your hands into yeah. in the entertainment business. And, you know, I, uh, a po- a possibly um, a possibly wrong conviction or indictment, I should say, yeah. indictment. She was never convicted for drug trafficking. Yeah, why not use that? <laughs> That's a good idea. Run with it. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. OK, well, there we go. Um, so <laughs> told you, yeah, t- told you I wanted to talk about yeah, it. Now. Yeah, that's good research. So I'm going to cut now to the plot summary. That's because this is kind of where the plot summary starts in the Diodato book, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, so this is where we find out what's going on on this oil platform. So it says when a secret Atlantic mission to refloat a stricken nuclear submarine is inexplicably disrupted by blackening skies and towering waves, the domed island of Atlantis rises from beneath the waves and a motorcycle gang called the Interceptors lays waste to an American coastal town. Now, there's a couple of... Just, just, let's, let's talk about this. <laughs> I mean, let's really think about this for a second. First of all, let's just be honest and say... The miniatures in this film leave oh, a good deal to be desired. They're really bad. It's like and, yeah. Um, in the uh, in the other book that we've been using, After the World Ends, it talks about how it looks like they've just been shot in a bathtub. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> they're right. I'm not arguing with that. That's yeah, a, this that's a fair it's sta- fair statement. This domed city rises out of the sea, and it just looks terrible. And there's a mm-hmm. at the at the end. I mean, it's not giving too much away to say that we see it sink again. And the dome closes as the water is sinking, and you can see that it hasn't closed it's, properly. No, it hasn't closed all the so way. There's like, no well, seal. Well, yeah. they're all dead. Yep, yep. <laughs> the water's just pouring in. Oh dear, it's really bad. Um, and so she, so we've got uh, here. So we've got all our characters here. Um, Doctor Kathy. We've got Bill, the pilot. Professor Saunders. Oh, we've also got Mikhail Soavi, who's playing oh, yeah, the kind of yeah. radar operator. He was there because he was also the assistant director. And mm-hmm. um, so they're all on board and things are starting to go wrong as this submarine is rising and then the, the waters all go mad. But um, it doesn't really make any sense. And then obviously we've meanwhile got our guys on the yacht, uh, Mohammed and Mike, and they're caught in the storm as well. And yeah. So the next morning, they um, they pick up some survivors, which is Bill, Professor Saunders, Doctor Kathy Rollins, uh, Michaela Salabi, and I think that might be it. So they're the only sort of survivors of this, because the oil rig has sunk as well. So, um, yep. Uh, by, and by the way, yeah. talking about the the miniatures. They didn't even attempt to match the look of the the miniature rig that gets swamped by the yeah. waves to the actual one. I mean, it's it's mm. it's comic. It's nearly it's nearly a joke. It's like, oh, is this some other rig? Yeah. Are we supposed to be? But no, no. It's just yes. it's just bad. It's like they didn't have effects. any reference photos for they the, must not have. when they built it or something. Yeah, like yeah, they must not have. They just got this generic oil rig picture and made it out. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um. Now, so we've already had our first glimpse by this point of the Interceptors because they've, it's basically a gang of Mad Max extras Mm -hmm. um, on choppers and um, three-wheel bikes 
and tricked out cars with spikes on the wheels and they've got all the mohawks and the makeup and they're led by a guy called Crystal Skull who yes. because he's wearing a glass mask which is never really explained why because I don't know how he breathes in that thing okay let's let's discuss these these ba- these gangs mm. of people and the the thing that the film is attempting to communicate but failing repeatedly to get across to any audience attempting to understand this film from what i can discern from little breadcrumbs along the way in this movie what we're supposed to think is that there are people walking around in the world who are descendants of people from Atlantis. Mm. Some of them know it, and some of them don't. But as soon as Atlantis surfaces, well then, they all become aware of their their ancestry and become these violent gangs, which... Oh. Understand, understand. I am piecing this together for multiple viewings right. of this damn film. See, that's not how I, I pick, that's not how I imagined it. Actually, so that's well, interesting. Okay, well then, okay, well then, see, <laughs> your 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 vision of it may be just as valid. Yeah. What are you thinking? Well, I just, I just assumed that on in the remnants of Atlantis that have been at the bottom of the ocean, they've had a fully functioning um, automobile and motorcycle manufacturing industry <laughs> and, and like the impression i got was that they just ridden st- straight off the island with on these things which didn't make any sense at all any to me. sense so your idea makes a bit more sense i mean only, but only still just, doesn't but... make much sense because crystal skull guy has to have been aware of his ancestry yeah. or how would he have the crystal skull yeah because he's got it in a drawer in his desk or something and he puts puts it on and then, yeah he pulls it out and puts yeah. it on like it's uh, time to rock and roll now yeah, buddy you like know. suddenly he's got yeah got this gang of um post-apocalypse people and so yes yeah, so, i mean that's really where we would that's why this film i think gets in, included in the post-apocalypse genre because of the look of these guys they are straight out of mad max they're very mm-hmm. colorful and this is where this is the um you know that filipino stunt school that diodato had met this is where they come into their own and we just get loads of action sequences and gunfights and chases and explosions and uh all kinds of exciting stuff so they once they're yeah so i'm trying to remember now and even the plot description in here isn't that helpful they go and um they make they land on this island where they discover all the inhabitants have been slaughtered by this gang who've either just suddenly put all the makeup on or they've just come up from the bubble we're not sure which and kathy gets um because kathy has this stone Oh yeah, that was right. I forgot to mention. So the reason she was brought to the oil rig in the first place is because they found an artifact at the bottom of the ocean that she can uh, translate. And she says it's basically like the Rosetta Stone for Atlantis. And Which, you know, sure, yeah. we'll go with that. So she can translate um, the Atlantean language. And so somehow they know this. I don't know how the Mad Max people know this, but they've <laughs> they kidnap her so that they can take her back to their underground base that 
because she might be able to unlock the key that the knowledge that's been long forgotten by the current inhabitants but if she right. can unlock it it will restore um atlantis to its former glory is that okay, about this is already more coherent that's than about the film right. itself <laughs> oh dear so yeah so, so she's kidnapped and mike is already a little bit in love with her despite the fact that she could be his daughter and uh, <laughs> the, the age range would work out yeah. very well so they manage to get hold of a helicopter and off they go um there's a quite an exciting chase where they're all in an old bus and there's a helicopter so yeah this is also confused so the atlanteans have a helicopter and they're chasing it, it, them it, in the it's, bus it's, it's best not to think about it it's really and, yeah i mean there's some it, good stunts they're jumping from the helicopter to the bus and all of that sort of stuff and um, later on Christopher Connolly has to jump from a, the top of a vehicle onto a different helicopter and Ruggiero Deodato said that he was doing all that stuff himself which is quite impressive because yeah. helicopters are terrifying like every time I read a book about Italian genre cinema there'll be something involving a horrific helicopter crash oh I know so yeah uh, every time I see a helicopter turn up in one of these films I kind of clench I'm just worried that something bad could happen um, I just have to say that I think that at this point whenever they finally got around to perfecting drone technology for, yeah. for different kinds of aerial shots mm-hmm. we, we probably saved the lives of God knows how many cameramen and, yep. and, and helicopter oh, pilots man. because you no longer have to do that to get those kinds of images on screen yeah. wow yeah so they so they're on this one island that's a kind of human island but now they've got to get to the atlantis island in the dome so they fly off in another helicopter that they found it's quite handy that they've got bill the helicopter pilot with them and this is so they fly over this island it's obviously one of these just beautiful verdant islands that the philippines has so many of but this is why i was confused because i was looking at that island thinking well where did they get all the motorbikes like how or the cool or the cool 50s car that is tricked out yeah crazy like where have they been if that is all that's left of atlantis so your i mean your theory makes more sense if somehow the people have just been gradually building up their army ready to fight back i don't really know it doesn't make sense because i I guess there's somehow because for a long time the nuclear submarine thing is kind of forgotten about and i wondered what had happened about that but then we get an explanation eventually from Professor Saunders, George Hilton, that the nuclear sub being risen to the surface somehow caused some kind of radiation leak or something that is what triggered the rise of Atlantis. So that's why Atlantis has decided to come back now. Is that right? Which, yeah, yeah, it's apparently <laughs> the the nearness of the radio you know the uh, the yeah. uh, atomic powered sub and the nuclear uh, mm. the nuclear missiles thereupon that has caused atlantis to rise so, it, so yeah it's, it's it, all by chance instead of bringing mutant fish it's brought um guys with mohawks and which you know yeah it, it, I, oh, all right that's 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 a movie that you could make <laughs> so they they kind yeah. of they kind of they kind of sort of play with the idea of making that movie yeah oh and i forgot to mention they met another human who is a german uh, called klaus 
uh, played by Stefano Mingardo, who I really recognised. I'm sure I've seen him. Has he been in all of Margariti's German co-productions? Because he looked really familiar oh, to know. me. I'm just looking him up now. This is live IMDb surfing. I know this is what podcast audiences love. Oh, it's the best. Uh -huh. It's exactly <laughs> what you came here for. But oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually know he didn't. He's been in Blast Fight. Well, I don't know what I recognise him from then, because he's only in four films, apparently. Well, but, I would recognise him from Blast yeah. Fighter, that's for sure. But So he's quite a fun character, so he comes along just to help them, because why not? And um, he's quite handy with a gun. So they're all running around on this lovely island, shooting uh, all these guys, and there's loads of stunts and people falling from really high, which is quite good. Yeah, um, no, I have to say, as much as... As much as I'm running this film down, and believe me, I know I am definitely yeah. running this film down, <laughs> some of the stunt work and some of the action sequences are a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, they don't make a lick of sense. Nope. There's like n there is no coherency to be found, but it moves. I'll give it that. Yeah, it's like um, Deodato went to these writers and said, "Okay, I want you to write me a script." that will make the audience keep talking about this film on the way home and they kind of <laughs> they they misunderstood what he yeah. meant and uh thought, well he <laughs> just give... well he did he didn't specify why they exactly. were talking about the film yes <laughs> oh dear okay so yeah so this this is where we get to the sort of it's almost like a sort of vietnam type sequence where they're fighting on the beach meanwhile somehow the nuclear sub has washed up on the beach of Atlantis or, don't ask too many questions or maybe it got stuck on the maybe they came up under the sub and it just kind of got stuck on it but sure. the, the sub is there so George Hilton's going to go and get one of the nuclear missiles to blow up Atlantis is that what he's going to do? that seems to be the idea yeah. not much seems to come of it no. but <laughs> no just like nothing comes from Wash uh, changing his name to Mohammed and then just ignoring it for most of the movie. Well, here's the thing: you were speaking you were speaking earlier about the the impression that you got that they essentially had a a series of ideas for set pieces, yeah, for action sequences, and the whole idea was we got to find a way to string all this crap together. <laughs> and never is it more evident. Well, it's evident throughout the film, yeah. but never is it more evident than. The, the sequence of events that allows them to string up a wire across a road to decapitate one of the motorcycle riding oh, yeah. uh, interceptor guys, uh -huh. where it's just like, you know, they just wanted to film this scene. Oh, Let's be clear. And there's a, yeah, <laughs> there's another bit where one of the um, interceptors gets smacked with one of those spiked bamboo traps that you know, you've seen in all the Vietnam movies. And then it, right, we right. cut to Mike Ross and he explains to Klaus the cleverness of building this thing but i was looking at it thinking that would have taken hours hours yes <laughs> he's had to cut down all uh. the bamboo i didn't even see any bamboo growing in that forest either so he's had to source the bamboo he's had to <laughs> cut each piece to size he's had to find the twine to you know whatever he's used oh yeah, to yeah tie it yeah. all together i mean that would oh, just hilarious <laughs> so, Jeez. Uh, but this is why we love these films, right? I, I it's, it's certainly uh, what what affection I have for this film does actually grow from the fact that it is completely insane. Yeah, nothing makes sense. <laughs> Everything is strung together in a haphazard fashion. Mm -hmm. There's uh, the the only motivation is to keep moving. 
Uh, I mean, it, the, the movie is chock full of completely ridiculous and stupid things. I mean, the point at which they're essentially barricaded inside a, a like a like a bar, uh, and uh, oh, yeah. they, they they're looking around for things to defend themselves, and in, in an amazing coincidence, guess what they find? All kinds of shotguns yeah. and boxes of shells, oh, that's and where... booze that they can turn into Molotov cocktails. So. Yeah, I meant to introduce this film as Assault on Atlantis Thirteen, because that whole... <laughs> that's basically what we that's get. That's not bad. Yeah, we get that for about yeah. twenty minutes. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And the, and the thing is, at first, uh, it, it felt a little bit like the the siege portion of Fulci's zombie, just mm-hmm. uh, just you know, just a little. And then you know, everything cranks up, and you're like, no, 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 it's something different. And Assault on Precinct Thirteen is 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 a good call. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're you're about right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to give the ending away because this is definitely worth watching, and it's available on a lovely Blu-ray, so you've got no excuse. Um, available in France as well from Pulse Video. As well as you've got no excuse. no excuse. I love, I love the fact that you say you say they've got no excuse. Yeah. If they're listening to us, they have every excuse in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't want to give you any way, but yeah, they they eventually have to find their way into the uh, like the inner sanctum of the Atlantis, and that's where it starts to get really sci-fi. And yeah, I know. And and this this is actually this is kind of fascinating because it's like. Raiders of the Lost Ark crossed with some kind of science fiction weirdness. Mm. It's it's bizarre. It reminded me a little bit of The Visitor for some reason. You know, like the sort of... Yeah, I could see that. The, I could the see space that. Jesus stuff. It also yeah. reminds me of Zardos. <laughs> I, don't know these are the, I don't know if these are the kind of comparisons they'd want me to be making. Probably not. Uh, especially not John Borman. I mean, yeah. <laughs> at least there was some there. At least there was some uh, thought behind the screenplay for Zardoz, mm-hmm. and I'm really sure that there was very little thought behind the script yeah. for this thing. But Deodato, he talked about this with great fondness. Like he had a great time making it, even though he knows it doesn't make any sense. And he also said, "Well, you know, yeah." He said in the interview how he doesn't like it when people say it's a science fiction film because he hates science fiction apparently, which is a bit harsh. Yeah. But I mean, some people, some people don't like certain genres, and that's okay. But he he made one anyway, whether he likes it or not. So I don't think there's any <laughs> there's any getting away from that really. And it does bring up the idea that if you dislike a genre, you know, is it even possible for you to make a decent <laughs> entry in that genre? I mean, if you're not going to take the genre either at face value or it, it remotely seriously, do, you know, th- does it behoove you to mm-hmm. even try? Because if you already dislike it, you're not exactly invested in trying to contribute to it, yeah. you know. But it obviously worked for him because it broke the cast, and then he carried on making films. He went, like you said, he made, made cut and run after this. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I looked it up, and from what I can tell, it did not get a release in cinemas um, in America or the UK, as far as I can tell. But it did get released on VHS. So. I think it was released as the Atlantis Interceptors in America, and um, and here, or was that? No, I think it was Raiders of Atlantis in America and Atlantis Interceptors in the UK. So this was a straight to VHS release for us, but um, I think it went. I think it was in cinemas in Italy, as far as I can tell. Okay. So I couldn't find any reviews. I was trying to find some contemporary reviews and see what people thought of this when it came out, but I guess because it was on VHS, it was kind of ignored by the. Um, the press but it's their loss is what i say 
Well, I mean, here's the thing, and we, we, we've talked about this already in doing this series of films. I mean, this being kind of grouped in with uh, the various post-apocalyptic films, it kind of fits and it kind of doesn't. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, all, so many of them are released in such a short a short period of time that there's that, that I, it would have been almost impossible for any man or any man or woman at all who was tasked with the idea of having to review cinema during that period of the 80s to not eventually just throw up their hands and go okay look man enough this this has got to this has got to stop and the thing is i mean it did burn itself out very very quick yeah. but imagine being in the thick of it and having to pay attention to this stuff because it's your damn job <laughs> the 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 amount of frustration and kind of head you know head hung low rubbing of the rubbing of the eyes that you would go through just going oh god do i need to watch do, do, do i need how much how much how much intoxication is necessary for me to make it through this one? It's just there has to have been a point where far too many people felt that this, you know, there needed to be an intervention, mm -hmm. perhaps some outside force, yeah. perhaps the government needs to pass a law. They need to stop making these things. And I think, I mean, if I'd have watched this in the mid '80s on VHS, I don't think I'd have worried too much about the plot. I'd have just enjoyed oh, well, no. all the action and wouldn't have cared if I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand what was going on in most of the films I was watching at that age, so just in, we would have just enjoyed all the shooting and the bikes and all that stuff. Well, these movies were primarily <laughs> aimed at a younger audience, and by younger audience, I'm saying uh, you know essentially a, a teenage yeah. audience to a degree. Sure. So they're the ones that are that are being aimed at. Yeah, yeah, and it's good fun. Oh, and I almost forgot the score is by Oliver Onions. Again, aka the DeAngelis brothers, which is a perfect excuse for me to play this again. What are you doing to us? Yeah, there you go. They will always have a place in my heart for that, for that tune. <laughs> your, your childhood, you, you British people yeah, are very, very, very strange. Of course, what can I say other than the fact, I mean, in, in comparison, I have in, an, on an endless loop in my head, both the theme song and all of the incidental music from Gilligan's Island. Oh, so nice. we're, but we're all trapped yeah. in our own particular hills, I guess. Now, I was going to mention, um, I've recently, well, I say recently, it's taken me ages, but I've started reading the classic counterculture novel, the Illuminatus trilogy, which mm. is very long. I'm about halfway through, and it's just, you know, it's basically just rammed full of conspiracy theories. But the one I've just been reading about is that basically the Illuminati started on Atlantis. So <laughs> it's quite interesting to compare that with this one. Um, there was no mention of motorbikes or uh, tricked out hot rods, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, according to that theory, this is uh, it's the home of the origins of the Illuminati. 
So maybe that's maybe that's who it was that was controlling all of the bikers. Did they have psychic powers? Oh wow! There's a there's a theory yeah. that that doesn't hold up under any scrutiny no. at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think we should probably <laughs> just drop uh, any further speculation. Well, well, here's a question I have for you. Before we run away from this movie, mm-hmm. I have a, I have a, I have a question. I know that you have a, a particular affection for for Ruggiero Diodato, mm. and just as in a general way, I just, I was just curious about this, and I wanted to, I wanted to ask you if, um, you know, what, what really would you consider to be your favorite of his, of his directorial efforts? Because the, the stuff that he made that is most famous is, is pretty dark and harsh stuff. Mm-hmm. And so my, my curiosity for you is, is, is like, which ones do you really, really enjoy? Which ones do you think are of as your favorites that he, that he produced? Well, I mean, it, his best film is Cannibal Holocaust. And okay. Cannibal Holocaust is a masterpiece, in my opinion. And, uh, but it's not necessarily the film I would stick on for fun. Where, oh, well, definitely not. No. <laughs> so I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, but I would have to say, um, "Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man," um, okay. which is yeah. is what I'm going to put on my tombstone. Lived lived like a cop, died like a man. I think is quite a good epitaph. So <laughs> it's, I, I I cannot wait to for you to communicate this to your yeah. family. This is what so, I want on my tombstone. Yeah, I think that's definitely up there. And I know when I spoke to him about it he said that was his favorite film of his but um really? oh, okay. yeah. yeah but he's got other films i mean there's, there's quite a few of his movies i haven't seen so i i'm not i've not been a completist yet with him but i mean they've all got something going for them even for, like even the silly ones like phantom of death um uh phantom yeah. of death has just gotten uh they're, they, I know, they're I about to that. release that over here in the states yes. on blue Cold, yeah. cauldron just announced that one i think mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so yeah, I, I, but yeah, uh, those uh, Cannibal Holocaust is like the film that would win the Oscar, and <laughs> Live Like a Cop. Oh no, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man is the kind of comfort film that I would just stick on to impress people. I mean, okay, how about you? Okay. Do you have any favorites? I have a few. I have a few favorites, and I have a few uh, films that are that remain gaps in my viewing that I'm I'm a little disappointed by. First of all, I will say that uh, I do I, I have to eventually track down a copy of one of his 1960s films, Gungala the Black Panther Girl, because I, mm-hmm. I must see it for yeah. various and sundry reasons, yeah. none of which are really worth discussing in public. I mean, maybe we should um, maybe we should do a Panther Girl mini season. Uh, honestly if you wanted to uh find a reason (laughs) to do uh italian jungle girl films uh i can think of a good solid five of them that would be worth talking about that would be a lot of fun but do you want to talk about uh a a niche a a niche i should say that very few people are going to be following us down into let's just say there there's a I know that I'm weird to be fascinated <laughs> by these things, especially considering, you know, what was possible and what was not possible. But yes, uh, I, think, I will eventually one day yeah. see Diodato's example. I think exploring a niche within what is already a niche is basically the MO of this podcast. So, you know, you may be right. Maybe we do need to we maybe we do need to do yeah. like a mini season of Jungle Girl films. Yep. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> Oh, but at any rate, like I say, although I haven't seen that one yet, I still need to, to track down a copy of that. Uh, 
I think Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man is astonishing. I think it's just an, an incredible film. Um, Cannibal Holocaust, I'm you know utterly impressed by and also appalled by. Mm-hmm. We, we discussed that at length over on The Bloody Pit several years ago. Uh, I have I have a certain fascination for his nastier things like uh, House on the Edge of the Park and yeah. Cut and Run, and uh, I have to I have to say um, there's uh, there, there's a there's a special weird little place in my heart for his uh, his uh, backwoods uh, body count film called Body Count from 1986. Oh, yeah. I have a lot I have that. a lot of time for that. Mm. I keep hoping that there will be a decent release of that to come out eventually. Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a rights problem or if there's a, a, a problem getting your hands on, you know, people getting their hands on decent, um, uh, you know, decent elements. But, I mean, it's, it's I, I'm utterly fascinated by it. I mean, once again, it has Ivan Rasimov, has Charles Napier, it has Mimsy Farmer and David Hess. It's, um, it's John Steiner, you know, it's, it's, it, like it's a, a film that... Yeah. Yeah, it really is well worth seeing, and it is quite entertaining. And no one was fooling anybody with the t- with the the English title "Body Count." Let's put it that way. Very much. Yes, I'm sure we will definitely come back to Dato again in some form or other, um, because he touched on so many different genres during his career. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this will not be the last time. So next episode, we are going to be talking about a film called Exterminators of the Year 3000, which is going to be another first time watch for me. So I'm looking forward to that. I don't think I think I've seen that one, but it was a very long time ago. Oh, I forgot to mention before we go, I saw Dario Argento last week. And, oh, that's right! Uh, yeah. I saw you. The, I saw the photos you posted. Yeah, yeah, I was going to tell you about it. Um, so there's a season right now at the BFI. The whole month of May, they're showing about I think it's 17 different restorations that have recently been done by um, Bologna by the Cineteca. And so yeah, they so but he had an accident um, about a month or so ago. Broke he broke his leg. He fell at home. So he did not look in a good way, and um, oh my! Yeah. He was on a he had a stick when he came out. I think he was probably a little bit medicated. He didn't want to cancel it, so he came, but he didn't look that great, poor guy. And um, he was everything was being translated, so he was being asked the questions. The the interviewer was Prano Bailey Bond, the director that did censor, and the um, so she'd ask him the question in English. Somebody would translate it for him. He would answer it in Italian. She would translate it back to English. Meanwhile, all the people in the audience that spoke Italian were laughing before we were because they'd heard his, they understood what he'd said. I was just, <laughs> I was getting about every fifth word. So it wasn't really working for me. But um, it was really good. So they spoke for about an hour. And I was really hoping that they would open it out to the audience. But I think he was basically getting tired. So they ended it after an hour. And then he was supposed to be introducing Suspiria. So I was going to stay and watch Suspiria. But then I went to see, just like hang around by the green room, which is just outside the main screen of the BFI to see what was going on. And I saw him come out and wave to people and then leave. And they said he was going back to the hotel. He wasn't going to do the introduction because he was too tired. So that was disappointing. Uh, So I didn't stay in the end. I had a long way to get home that night. So I decided to cash in my ticket. There was a queue of people trying to get cancelled tickets so I 
let one of them have it. Um, but apparently the next day he did some introductions for Tenebrae and Inferno and, you know, so he was he stuck around for the weekend and did a few more intros, but um, the actual, the full hour event was, was really good. I'm glad I was there. It was really interesting. I mean, he didn't, he didn't necessarily tell us any stories we hadn't heard before, particularly, but it was just great to be in the room with him and to get the opportunity to applaud him. There was a big standing ovation at the end. And this might be the last time something like this happens. You know, I don't want to be morbid, but yeah, he's old, no, he's old, yeah, and, but it's, old yeah. and frail now and probably isn't going to want to travel much more after this, I wouldn't think. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if, like, if he doesn't come back to the UK. So um, really glad I got to go. It's pretty cool. And also I managed to get to him via staff that I know at the BFI. I got him a copy of my book on Norman J. Warren because I thought Norman would like that. Norman was a big fan of Dario and they didn't they did know each other a little bit and he was a big influence on Norman's films, especially Terror. Which is yeah, basic, yeah, basically basically yeah. a rip off of Suspiria. <laughs> Pretty much, exactly. Um, yeah, so I got I managed to get a copy of the book to him. I didn't get to meet him, but at least hopefully he's taken it home. So So that was good. So that was last weekend for me. So I nearly forgot to tell you about it. There we go. <laughs> well, I'm glad you remembered because yeah. uh, you're right. I mean, we are uh, we are approaching that time when we're going to eventually have to say goodbye to Mr. You know, yeah. Mr. Argento, and uh, that that will be a sad day. I mean, we've um, in in recent days, you know, we're, we're we're getting to the point where there's not a month that goes by where we don't lose some oh, no. luminary luminary who I kind of grew up yeah. idolizing or being impressed by or being entertained by. It was just um, and, Helmut uh, Berger yesterday, I think passed away exactly helmet burger and jim brown too oh, yes yeah and uh it's it, you know it, it, it it's very easy unfortunately to remember these uh as they happen because they just seem to come so quickly and these are these are people who you know had a massive massive impact mm -hmm. on their their respective uh, you know their their careers were they loom large over what they uh, what they did yeah. and it, it is it's one of those things where you're you're appalled that they're passing but at the same time you know these you know these people Jim Brown was in his eighties I mean yeah. you forget that he's not still that 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 tough guy actor or that tough guy football player and with Helmut Berger you still just picture him as that guy yeah. that you last saw on screen you know well and I. <laughs> From the opposite perspective, all the, there was a big furore uh, kicking off yesterday because they've just screened a new, again, another new cut of Caligula, which was screening, oh, at, yeah. screening at the Cannes Festival yesterday. And Tinto Brass has come out and said he's going to sue them. And I just read that and I was like, wait, Why? Tinto Brass is still alive. Like, <laughs> well, okay, there's there's that too. So yeah. that was my that, really? that was my response. I was like, what? And if he's still, if he's complained that they didn't get him, that he wasn't involved, they've edited it without him. So therefore, it's oh. it's not it's not his film because he wasn't involved in the editing. As far as he's concerned, the filmmaking is the editing. And it surprises me that oh. they would go to all the trouble to do a new cut of Caligula and not involve him at all. But maybe like me, maybe they read that and they're like, wait, he's still alive. And they just—they <laughs> yeah—they were unaware. It's like holy crap, he is. Yeah, they just forgot to check. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, there have been two or three different edits of Caligula mm -hmm. over the years. I mean, it's uh, 
the fact that there's a new one isn't exactly a shock. But, but this is interesting because apparently they've used all entirely new um, shots. They claim really they claim that nothing is in there that was in the original film. So they've used other takes, wow. different takes, and created basically That's a new film. Crazy, yeah. They've created a new film out of all the footage, and left everything that was in the original film out, which. I don't know how that's going to work, but it's getting good reviews. But Tinto Brass, who's ninety, is quite annoyed. Interesting, very interesting. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a little uh, now. I have to admit, now with that knowledge, I'm a little more interested in seeing yeah, this new cut. Intriguing. That's that's very interesting. Anyway, we've gone way off topic, but um, oh yes, 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 we have. Sorry, so, people. Sorry. <laughs> thanks everybody for being with us again. Please do get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. I've been getting some. Uh, nice comments on Twitter lately so do get in touch with us there you can also email us uh, you can buy us a virtual coffee um, we're on Instagram as well and or you can just stop either of us in the street and give us the <laughs> special handshake um, yes yes the, 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 the special fingernail tickle the special yes. handshake that only people from Atlantis know so uh, that's that's another good way to uh, to contact us any crystal skulls that yeah. you might want or crystal masks that you might want to send our way are so, welcome. Yeah. So. so thanks, everybody. And we'll be back uh, relatively soon. Rod and I do have a couple of exciting top secret commentary track projects on the go at the moment, which may slightly delay us getting to the next episode, but um, it'll be worth it, I assure you. Yes, yes. And with that, Very exciting stuff. With that said, uh, we'll say... Bye for now, and we'll be back soon-ish. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye, everyone. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.